Hi, I'm Julianne Schultz, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Sydney Ideas event. Griffiths Reviews uh, hosting this event in conjunction with the wonderful Sydney Ideas. Um, we've really enjoyed having the opportunity to do events with uh, Sydney Ideas over the last few years. Before I introduce the guests this evening, and it's sort of nice, isn't it, here we've got a, a panel of four women um, addressing this question of fixing the system, um, which is a nice change, I think. Um, but before I introduce the guests, I'll, I'll just want to tell you a little bit about the idea behind this edition, which I co-edited with my colleague, Professor Ann Tiernan from Griffith University. Um, and it really came about... Um, it's fair to say about uh, 12 months or so ago when there was a sort of mantra that the system is broken and everything's rotten and ruined and it's all terrible and politics is hopeless and how can we make things better? And it was a sort of really interesting exercise because we were commissioning pieces and asking people to write for us um, during the period of the Abbott Prime Ministership. And just as we were about to close off the books, the, change, the, lead, the political leadership changed in, in Canberra. And it sort of threw everything up in the air, in a way. We had to say, well, is what the, is what the tone of this issue is about? Is, it about? is it about Tony Abbott as Prime Minister, or is it about something bigger? And we knew it was about something bigger, but it was a sort of um, one of those things where, I must say, I was extremely pleased that we'd finished off the edition um, after the change of leadership had occurred and not before, because if we'd come out in February with an edition which was really built around the Abbott Prime Ministership, it would have, I think, probably hit a rather, rather sour note. So what we were trying to do was to look at what the sort of, um, you know, what, the, what that meant when people said the system is broken and how can we fix it, and um, ranged from sort of fairly um, straight sort of politics at one level through to social policy issues, and trying to look at, uh, look at where, the, where the vulnerabilities were. And I think that my authors have all done a remarkably good job, and, and I think that uh, your attendance here tonight suggests that uh, the ideas that have been thrown up are ones which have got some re resonance. Um, so the speakers this evening are Tamsin Peach, who is, uh, I think, known to many of you because she's very involved in the Sydney Ideas Program. She's a scholar here at the University of Sydney. Um, Chris Wallace, who's a very well-known journalist um, and author and has recently completed a, her PhD at ANU on political biography, uh, which has uh, added yet another string to her very well-equipped bow, uh, quiver, bow. <laughs> um, Anne Arnold, who is a uh, very experienced uh, reporter with and producer with ABC Radio National, who's uh, um, been doing some remarkable work of late on asylum seekers and on prisons, which is what she's written about for this edition. And Gabby Stroud, who's been the great st one of the great stars of this edition. Gabby's written about her decision very reluctantly to stop being a teacher. And um, you may have heard her with Richard Feidler on the ABC. Um, her piece, uh, which we put up on our site, you know, very well orchestrated to coincide with the beginning of the school year, I think within the first two days had something like 20,000 downloads. Um, so it really hit a, hit a nerve, which she will tell us about tonight. So please join with me in welcoming, I guess. So what I'd like to do is just to start with each of them giving a little bit of a snapshot of, of what you've written or, in, or reading from what you've written. Tamsin. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Julianne, and uh, thank you all for coming. 
Um, my piece in this book is a sort of love letter to institutions, um, but it's also, a, a, I'm a historian, it's a, it's a meditation on, a, on how we got to where we are. Um, and it does, it, 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 it asks those questions by, by drawing, um, by thinking about the apparent similarity between the language of liberation that motivated many of the 1960s protest movements, which did so much to reform um, the world that they had inherited, uh, and the apparent language of choice that motivates, uh, or that we that is so apparent in our marketized society. Um, and it makes the point that um, although there is an apparent similarity between those two um, junctures and some of and the life of Christopher Hitchens illustrates very clearly the movement from one to the other, um, that the, 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 when the 1960s liberation movements were um, making their case, they were followed very swiftly by a 1970s set of inst institutions in the 1970s, public institutions, which did the work of holding individuals um, in a way that enabled them to live lives, um, to be free, to live lives of freedom. But most of us did not live according to the ethics of the 1960s liberation movements until the 80s or 90s. And it was at that moment that new policies, new economic policies, began to undo many of the public institutions that had made earlier lives possible. Um, so that sits in the middle of my piece, but I just wanted to do a short reading at the end, um, which, is, which comes from the conclusion. Uh, so at the moment we find ourselves stuck in a predicament where our society of choice is one that only the strong, healthy, informed, wealthy, healthy and available can navigate. The new market economy gives us many choices, but it can also render, render us overstretched and alone. Institutions hold us in time and they connect us to each other. But the politics of privatisation and the unchecked market erode public institutions for a reason. It is the thick forms of human association mobilised around bigger ideas of the good, such as the environment, fair work or our common humanity, and empowered by practical organisation and resources that pose the biggest obstacles to market logic. It is therefore these thick forms of human association, of social connection and meaning, that we need to foster if we are to flourish in the age of liquid modernity. They connect us to each other in time and space, and in doing so, they not only recognise the embedded and messy nature of our actual lives, they also give us ways to mitigate the alienating effects of the market society. Because it is not just disappointment we feel when institutions let us down, it is indignation, as if something fundamental about the way the world works has been dishonoured. And as Hugh Helco puts it in his book on thinking institutionally, in a backhanded way, our capacity to feel betrayed speaks to a residual trust in institutional values. Getting angry at the way institutions fail us is not a sign we want to do away with them. It's an indication that we want them to do better. So you talk in that um, about um, your conclusion you reach is one about participation, yeah. um, which I wouldn't mind just asking you just a little bit to expand on because I think that will provide a nice link to Chris talking about political participation. Sure. Um, so I think institutions ask us to, to participate. Um, and I talk about why I love institutions. I think love is a useful way of thinking about them because while interest-based engagement, I'm reading here, leads to disconnection when that interest is not met, love only gets stronger and more energetic when the threat to it draws nearer. 
but love requires an obligation uh, to hold and to be held accountable, and it entails uh, undertaking uh, it tells undertakings to reform, and yes, it also sometimes means heartbreak, but above all, it means participation. And I think institutions give us ways to participate because whilst they mediate the great questions of life, perhaps questions of eternity or equality with daily acts, they also provide what I call congregations, PTNF associations, football clubs, um, forms of political engagement, including union membership and, and parties that are often around the corner. And they are places where people miss you if you don't turn up um, and ask things of you when you do show up. And they're a very human way we can engage, I think, and strengthen a system that the institutions that are at the, the heart of, of keeping our system workable and providing lives or providing ways to live and flourish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, Chris, one of the big keys in this is, is active political participation. Um, so, tell us your... Yes, well, Julianne very brilliantly sent me Max Weber's Politics as a Vocation uh, as a bit of a thought prompt for my piece, and I don't know how many of you here have read it, but afterwards, immediately, go and Google it. Uh, it's a sensational read. Weber uh, spends a lot of time meditating on the nature of narcissistic political leadership and, you know, pick up your Griffith Review, five prime ministers in five years in Australia, I mean, that tells you something about the kind of people we're getting at, at the top. Um, Weber concluded that we needed politicians that had three characteristics, that they had to have passion, had to have a feeling of responsibility along with a sense of proportion and all, in, all joined in the one person. They had to have a sense of detachment uh, from the situation and themselves that gave them perspective and judgment and maturity uh, in a way you don't get with narcissistic politicians. So I, I began reflecting, you know, how would we categorise the kind of politicians we're getting? And it seemed to fall into three handy rhyming groups. Uh, they, they seemed to be mostly, well, pretty much altogether could be folded into three groups. Those driven by need, greed, or deed. Now, the needy are your classic kind of narcissistic politicians, the kinds of, kind of people that go into public life because they've got to have the attention. They've got to live their own psychodrama out in the public stage and, and be fed by the attention we give them. And I, I name names sometimes, but I'm not going to tonight. It's, it's getting too long. Um, then, there's, then there's those driven by greed. I can sum them up in two words, Brom and Bishop. <laughs> you know the type. But there's a large number who are, are two who are driven by deed, you know, the idea that you go into politics to do something good, to make things better. And there are many more politicians in that group than we, than we really give credit for. Uh, again, I won't go through a list of names, you probably have your own pet list. But my argument in this piece is we should be looking at this group Weber identifies in politics as a vocation called occasional politicians. And I suspect nearly everyone in this room, everyone on this panel, is an occasional politician. You know, you've occasionally been a member of a political party. Sometimes when you were, you actually went to branch meetings. Uh, you signed petitions, you've probably been to the odd rally. Uh, probably late at night, a couple of times in your life, over a couple of glasses of red, you've thought, yeah, maybe I should give politics a shot and then done nothing about it or really wanted to do it but you've had 10 kids or your career won't allow it, you know, financial circumstances won't allow you to, to do it. That, that broad group of sane people are the ones that the, the 
the deity, you know, the people who really want to do good in politics uh, are really all about. So getting back to your point about institutions, you know, these things called political parties would have it well in their hands, within their powers, to infuse the ranks of current politicians with more deedy people, less needy and greedy people if they wanted to. And my piece is really an, is an argument for us to all look in the mirror in the morning and go, well, what have I done? What have I brought to the table? You know, yes, there are problems in the polity. What am I doing to, to, to fix it? Because it is within all our hands. Now, I'm, I'm making it sound a bit easy, perhaps, but there's this thing called the Senate. And these tickets are largely set up by you know, a couple of people with a pencil and an envelope over a table once every so often. You know, if we only had a few more of the deity going into those spots instead of a bunch of hacks, time servers and number crunches, it would be sensational for the polity. So have you answered that yourself? I mean, you answer, what about me? What have I done? What can I bring? What will I do? Yeah, she's a very tough person, Julianne. She looks nice, but, you know, she does this behind the scenes. Look, um, I'm a journalist, and I've got to tell you quite honestly, there are a lot of journalists who have been into politics, and it usually doesn't end that well. I mean, occasionally, yes, but mostly journalists are people who are analysing, reporting on, commentating on what other people do because they're not that good at running things. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. So we might come back to that later because I think that, that those points of transition are actually quite important to sort of tease out. Now I'd like to introduce Anne, who's written about prisons, one of the establishing principles of, of this nation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's where we started. Um, so I made a um, radio documentary for background briefing about law and order politics. A very successful um, offender rehabilitation program, or post-release program it was called, um, just based down the road here on Broadway called the CRC, Community Restorative Centre. And they were doing long-term work with offenders who'd been released, helping them get settled in the community house, dealing with addictions, finding employment, etc. Their programs got radically slashed under some policy changes of the New South Wales government. Um, and that's what that program was about. Then um, last year, when um, Andrew Chan and Mayuran Sukumaran were executed in Indonesia, um, then Prime Minister Tony Abbott and Julie Bishop were both clearly distressed by what had happened. The nation had been pretty much sort of mourning and hoping it wouldn't happen, mourning before it happened and hoping it wouldn't happen, and then it did. And um, when they talked about, um, as our political leaders talked about these people being fully rehabilitated and, you know, had done a lot of work in prison and were new people now and didn't deserve to die, I thought, gee, you'd think that was something our country was really committed to. You'd think we actually do that really well here, but we don't. We have very ad hoc programs, not nearly enough of them. Um, so I was going to read, if, um, mm -hmm. if that's OK. Um, when imprisonment is seen as the only solution, there will always be more prisoners. Mark Halsey, a professor of criminal justice at Flinders University, and his colleague Simone Deegan followed 14 young South Australian male offenders over 10 years from 2003 and have published the results of their research in a book called Young Offenders, Crime, Prison and Struggles for Desistance. And desistance is the criminological term focusing on pathways away from trouble, the opposite of the more traditionally used recidivism. 
Some of the young men they tracked did manage to desist from offending. But one man, Chris, was not a success story. In his mid-twenties, he'd recently been sentenced to 14 years after a series of violent crimes. And the authors wrote in their introduction, even the prosecution team in court, obviously, agreed Chris had one of the most troubled and deprived early life courses they'd encountered. Still, he had to pay for what he'd done. He had to pay even though it was broadly acknowledged that his was a life bereft of the building blocks necessary for carving out any semblance, semblance of a conventional existence. And Chris had spent most of his days since the age of 13 in a custodial facility of some kind. And the, and the authors say, the colloquial, the colloquial definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly in the hope that a different result will arise. Prison, in other words, can be the antithesis of rehabilitation. And then um, the obvious focus for this issue is um, Aboriginal imprisonment. One of the grimmer, ironic truths of European settlement in Australia is that after starting with a group of prisoners, it's the descendants of those they displaced who are now disproportionately locked up. Indigenous Australians form nearly a third of the jail population nationally. And um, I talked to a couple of people in that situation for this, um, this piece for Griffith Review. It's interesting, isn't it, that in New South Wales, I think the figure is that nearly half the people who inmates, people who have been in prison, will be back in, after they've been released, mm. will be back in jail after two years, mm. um, which sort of speaks to a mm. to a, a major flaw in the process, doesn't it? Yeah, something's very definitely broken, and and politicians know how expensive it is to keep people in prison, mm. but they also figure there's no votes in um, in in the disenfranchised, basically. So they're not going to put their neck out for people who are on the fringe of society. Yes. Well, we'll come back to that, of how those difficult conversations might be had in, 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 this, in, in this environment. And Gabby, education. Yes. Can everyone hear my racing heart? <laughs> OK. Are you sitting comfortably? You're ready to listen? So I've got a story for you. <laughs> Teaching. Good teaching is both a science and an art. Yet in Australia today, this incredible and important profession is being reduced to the sum of its parts. It is considered something purely technical and methodical that can be rationalised and weighed. But quality teaching isn't born of tiered professional standards. It cannot be reduced to a formula or discrete parts. It cannot be compartmentalised into boxes and checked off. Good teaching comes from professionals who are valued. It comes from teachers who know their students, who build relationships, who meet learners at their point of need and who recognise that there's nothing standard about the journey of learning. We cannot forget the art of teaching. Without it, schools become factories, students become products, and teachers nothing more than machinery. Here's the thing. 
A national curriculum does not guarantee engagement or achievement, no matter how glossy and persuasive the buzzwords are. And regular standardised testing simply makes people better at sitting tests. Imposing goals and standards on teaching professionals only serves to squeeze from them the last few drops of goodwill they may have held. In my last months as a teacher, I had become scared. I was scared of teaching outside the prescribed model because it may not fit the current trend. I was scared my teaching would be judged critically. I was scared of neglecting students by prioritising paperwork over their needs. I was scared of a workload that was in no way related to teaching and learning. And now, I'm scared for all the children in primary schools across Australia because I think more teachers, more good teachers, are going to leave. And in doing so, our country's very foundations become decidedly shaky. Who will teach our children? I can't do it anymore. Thank you. So what do you think needs to be done? Um, and I'll ask this to each of you. What needs to be done to fix the system, the problem that you've identified? Gabby, at the end of your piece, you ask a lot of questions. You know, you say, um, what, what you try to imagine what a place would be like with, with a different priority. I mean, do you, have, do you have an answer to what needs to be done to make it? I'm one teacher and I don't have all the answers, but I have some ideas. The first thing that I think that needs to happen is that politics needs to become divorced from education. I'd really like to stop, um, I'd like to stop seeing politicians throw education around like it's a political football that they can use for their own gain. I think that's step one. Step two is something that's probably even more difficult, and that is that I think that we need a paradigm shift um, in how we imagine education and what education in Australia could look like. I think we're stuck in an archaic model that comes from you know, the industrial age where um, I have a, a friend and colleague who describes it as, you know, that we look at education like a sausage factory. We, we put this in, we do this to it, and out comes the sausage. And I also think that, and, and one of the things I say in my piece is that uh, we need to think for ourselves. Australia needs to start making decisions about education, not based on what the US or the UK or even Finland or anywhere else is doing, that we should look at, at top quality research. We should talk to teachers and, and the people that are in the profession at the moment. We should look at what's happened in the past and we should make decisions from there based on the beliefs that we share um, about what we want for the future of our country. So how does that conversation happen? Um, maybe as we go through talking about this, I mean, we'll, we'll go through each of your areas, but that, I'm curious about how you actually advance those, those propositions. And maybe if you talk a little bit about what you think should be done in, to, in relation to, to the prison problems that you've, you've identified. Sure, I was just, I 
didn't find it quickly enough, but looking, there's a, a shocking figure of how many, how few, um, from the Productivity Commission, of how few prisoners actually are taking part in education programs, are able to take part in education programs. Sorry, is that, where's the, the listener that, can you hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, there's got to be more education. I mean, for a lot of people um, who end up in prison, it's been a pretty hard road before that as well. So prison is an opportunity to, um, to offer things that people haven't had before and to help them reorient their lives. Um, a lot of that's to do, obviously, with drug and alcohol programs too. Um, you know, it's sort of fairly common sense stuff, isn't it, really? I don't think I'm the first to say it, of, of where the investments need to be in education, drug and alcohol. And then you've got the, um, uh, the reinvest uh, mm. movement, mm. too, which is gaining a lot of ground, uh, the idea of, of investing in communities to make them stronger and, and people's lives healthier and better in the first place so they don't end up in prison. So the, the cost-benefit analysis is pretty compelling, isn't it? I mean, an effective, the cost of effective rehabilitation, um, not, quite apart from the benefit to the individual, is, it results in a massive saving. Yes, and um, being accommodated, even if you're an offender, being accommodated outside of a prison setting and being educated and receiving drug and alcohol treatment, my understanding is that if you were to combine all those things, it would still not be as expensive as being kept in prison. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, in, in the political, the straight political environment, I mean, are the parties up for the sort of change that, you know, people seem to be calling for, saying that there's too many politicians who, are, who all come out of the same, the same mould? Can I just offer a yeah, couple sure. of comments on, on what you've just been talking about? Gabby, your piece is so affecting. Uh, really, one's heart is just rendered reading what, uh, what's in there. And one of the things that struck me was how this kind of bureaucratisation of everything, this everyone being smashed to bits by accountability demands, when you talk about the endless paperwork, which has nothing to do with the teaching of your students, that just extracts all the hours that would have otherwise gone into class prep time and, and, and direct contact with students and, and parents. It's heartrending. And this, this is, you know, Tamsin from the university sector, um, it's the same. It's this, almost like this endometriosis that's just choking the life out of every system and institution you want to see. And I don't see anyone going, well, let's make things better by ripping off these layers of pointless accounting which make who knows who more secure when they wake up in the morning so that we can actually get time resources back to what we're supposed to be doing. And I was talking to a former Federal Education Department bureaucrat on Friday night at dinner who was telling me one of the worst moments in her career was when, I can't remember which, which minister it was she was working for, cut the funding for literacy teaching in prisons, despite the fact that the recidivism rate for, for a, an inmate who comes in illiterate and goes out literate is so much lower than one that comes in illiterate and goes out illiterate. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me there's kind of costing issues. There's kind of, if you actually costed the life cycle of a serious devoted criminal and intervened at a few points with, you know, maybe a grand's worth of literacy teaching that could save $500,000 from the taxpayer mm. down the track, you know, people mm. who go for it, but we don't tend to, to think in that in that way. Mm. Julianne, in terms of your question, mm. yeah, the political parties are not enthusiastic. These, these are games of small numbers. The smaller you can keep the numbers, the more tightly you can control them. But, you know, that's in their interest. What's in our interests? We've only ever got things done by mobilising. 
and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the, this room is going to rise up and join the local political party, but even if 10% of you did and slightly swayed at the edges a series of, of inflected decisions one way or another on the odd pre-selection, the odd party official, uh, you know, the, this is the start of making things happen. It's awful. You know, I don't like branch meetings. Uh, I tell a story in here of how Weber himself in December 18, December 1918, ran for the Reichstag and um, didn't get elected because he was put too far down the ticket. And he writes this fantastic letter to the, the boss of the Social Democratic Party and says, well, you know, it's just as well I didn't become a politician anyway, but thanks for where you put me on the ticket. And, you know, anyway, I wouldn't have wanted to compromise my scholarly principles. But, you know, in, Weber was a brilliant academic. He did wonderful work in the academy. But imagine if he'd been sitting in the Reichstag in the run-up to the Weimar period and actually being able to influence things for the better, a course of action away from where it led in the 30s. You know, as painful, dirty, horrible and compromising as it can be, that's the business of politics, getting in there, getting, getting your sleeves rolled up, putting up with the jerks, just waiting them out, trying to, when you can, get things done for the better rather than for the worse. And if we all did a bit more of it, even a little bit more of it, I think we could get some improvement in the system. I wonder, Tamsin, do you want to respond, respond to that? Oh, You're talking, yeah, uh, and then I'll come on up. Yeah, um, you know, it was really striking. I don't know how many of you have read uh, the pieces, but something connects um, Anne's and, and Gabby's piece really strongly, and that's the relational character of these in, of institutions. And you talk particularly about the Glen and how people are really pulled into a community there and they don't want to leave, really. There's a high... Well, mm. they stick around the edges of it. Mm. Um, and that relational nature of institutions is, I think, I mean, not just institutions, it's what gives meaning to our lives. And what you both described, all three of you actually, is economics and the uh, dollar imperative as the chief driving consideration. And, and universities and schools too have had, and prisons clearly, have had these marketized me mechanisms inserted inside them and we all compete against each other. We compete against each other in the university for research funding, for students, uh, for, for all sorts of things and we compete in a national market as well. And it strikes me that there are re we really have other languages of value and there are, there's a much better way for us to be talking about what, how we want to design society. And I think we need, if we're going to launch en masse into political institutions, and I'm wholly behind you, we need to do that with uh, a story about what, what makes life livable. And I think one of the reasons people don't launch wholesale into political organisations is because they have no time. And part of the reason they have no time is because big institutions, you used to drop your kids off at the local school, and now what is it, more than 50% of Sydney families are ferrying their children across school to private schools, That's, which adds a whack of time to your day that otherwise you would not, you, you would have to do something with. And that is, that is replicated across healthcare sectors. We buy products which we used to not have to, used to trust our public institutions to, mm. to, to give us. Mm. Um, so I think there's a connection between uh, the way we are letting our society and our institutions be governed and our ability to participate in them. I think, Tamsin, you're really onto something with this marketisation thing because just, just think what you're doing you know, you know, in your daily day. You, you've gone through the agony of getting to work with a crappy public, public transport system, which takes forever. You work longer at, at work than, than the prescribed amount for whole lots of cultural and ridiculous reasons, but basically because of competition. 
you know, you're worried about holding on to your job. You get home on the crappy public transport system and you collapse in front of a television that uniformly delivers marketised entertainment. You know, who's going to get voted out of the house? You know, whose souffle just isn't damn well up to scratch? You know, even our, our kind of entertainment at night is all about the market, who's winning, who's losing, who's getting crunched. It's kind of like the, the id of Margaret Thatcher has just permeated every <laughs> molecule in our society and we cannot get away from it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, just linking the offender and education thing. Yes, we've got a bit of a theme going, haven't we? Mm. Um, the, there was work done, published big work by Professor Eileen Baldry and colleagues at Uni of New South Wales, um, published in November last year, ongoing project they've been working on for years and years, but um, looking at the Aboriginal prison population and, um, and the multiple mental and cognitive disabilities that some of this population have, as well as drug and alcohol dependency, and they found there'd been a failure to diagnose early and accurately and few services were able to meet all the complex needs and that police and prison, quote, police and prisons have become government's default way of managing this vulnerable group, which is pretty bad. Um, and I made another program on disability education and the gaps, the gaps in that system. And, you know, you would know that there's a huge unmet need there and lots of kids with disabilities being turned away from mainstream schools who don't feel they are either able or equipped or, or just willing to take on kids with behavioural problems and other, you know, complex learning difficulties. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, um, so-called special schools where kids can just be parked, in some, kids can be just be parked in the corner and they're just minded and not taught. Um, and so you can see the obvious linkage there that if, if those kids are not educated better than they currently are, then at least some of them, you would imagine, may end up in this other big institution where we don't want them to go. <laughs> and, and Gabby, that was obviously your experience as well, wasn't it, with the diverse range of needs of your children, the children in your classroom who yeah. you felt by the pressure of what you had to account for that you couldn't couldn't really meet yes I was you know applied this standard uh, education to this great variety of children and you know produce a sausage it just wasn't working um, I think it's interesting Tams and what the things you were saying we have other you said we have other languages of value and I think that's so important because as a teacher, I want to teach the students in my classroom all those other languages of value, and yet the system that they're functioning within for those critical years of schooling, it starts right in primary school. You know, we're teaching them that the language of value is your performance on a test and, you know, ultimately what, what job you're going to get, you know, where you're going to end up in the, you know, in the, uh, the food chain of... of you know, economics, really, and, and it's starting so young. We're teaching them that. What, what did you take from the, 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 the strength of the reaction to your piece? I mean, you've, you've been on radio and you've been around the traps, you know, that there's been such a... Do you think there's a hunger for this conversation or what were you hearing back from people? Um, the, this whole experience has been quite overwhelming because... Uh, I, I'd been teaching, I was a very good teacher, I was teaching um, very well and 
um, then I just uh, had some warning signs that I just pushed on through because that's what teachers do, you just keep on going. And um, I ended up with burnout and couldn't get out of bed for two weeks. And that was, I, I, I still feel embarrassed saying that to you because I'm a really, I'm a tough person. But what's happened in writing this is it feels like I had this massive fall over, you know, like I've been running my hardest and then just stacked in spectacular fashion. And as I've stood up, it feels like everyone's giving me this huge thunderous round of applause <laughs> and saying, good, good on you. Because, you, you know, you're standing there saying, I stacked it. I can't do this anymore. Um, so it's almost, whilst it's been very overwhelming, it's been very, um, it's been a great privilege to have this massive stack and have this groundswell of support behind me saying, no, you can, you can get up and you, you can say some more and you can make this better for, for us. I'm, I'm hearing it from parents, I'm hearing it from teachers, I'm hearing it from ex-teachers. I'm, I'm receiving emails daily from teachers saying, um, you know, yeah, I just had to walk out of the school and, and, and walk straight across the road to the hospital. I thought I was having a heart attack. Mm. So, Gabby, are you going to go into politics, become Minister for Education and fix the policies? <laughs> because you've got to do something with that groundswell of support. You know, you've really, you've really hit a nerve. You've got the ideas of how to fix it. I'm too clever for politics. <laughs> well, well that, that was actually kind of what Max Weber ended up saying to the person he wrote to, saying, stick your spot on the ticket. But seriously, you are exactly the kind of person who's had a deep revelation about mm. something very wrong in the system that mm. needs to then kind of carry that ball forward and do something with it. Mm. Yeah. The challenge with that is, though, that I sort of feel at the moment like I'm a recovering teacher. <laughs> Still feel <laughs> Um, so, you know, and, and it's been said to me, oh, geez, Gab, if, if you're going to fight the fight for education, make sure that's the hill you want to die on. So, you know, there's this feeling of, yeah, I'd, I'd love to affect change and I'd love to, um, you know, continue having this conversation with the right people so that things did change. But, you know, that experience I had of burnout and of not being able to go on anymore, I'm never going to put myself in that position mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And the loss, of course, is you've talked in the in the piece, lovely little um, cameos, I suppose, of mm. children at the start. She introduced, if anyone hasn't read it, Gabby introduces different kids, and you just instantly recognise these kids, and often with very complex home situations, and she wants to be able to give more time to them. And so when you lose the good teachers, you're also losing that interest that some kids get from teachers, which you know, might be the first time they've had it in their lives. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether we put too much expectation on the political um, system to deliver the solutions to these things. I mean, it's been interesting in the last, the last little while hearing both Stan Grant and Noel Pearson, for instance, saying, mm, actually, maybe I have to go into politics because that's where policy gets set. Um, and yet, you know, we know that that's not necessarily right. Um, and I'm just wondering what your your thoughts are. I mean, you're seeing it now in the, I guess, in the the falling away of support for the prime minister. You know, which people were so enthusiastic when he was first became prime minister, and already now it's sort of like he's not delivering. I mean, do we have unreasonable expectations of what can be done through that process, or are Stan and Noel right that that is the place where policy can really change? I mean, I think I don't. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I, th I think it's a, always a conversation between uh, our politicians and our civil society. And um, not everyone can be a politician or wants to be. Um, but possibly a lot more of us can be involved in the process in a real way than we are. But by the same token, a robust public discourse who, you know, and this can take a lot of shapes. It doesn't just have to be um, reading the newspaper. We, most of us have pension funds. This is one of the great political um, strategies of our time. Where are those pension funds invested? And it, it doesn't actually take much to, you know, anti-apartheid movement began with the university disinvestment campaign. So I, I think there are forms of activism that we can begin with, uh, which enable us all to participate in ways that are small and connect our daily acts to the great questions of the society we want to build. Um, I, I think one of the problems is that we, we create this, you know, we offload responsibility. We talk about them, the politicians. Mm. We are the politicians. You know, it's a joined system. We elect these people. We are responsible for them. You know, the fact that they keep getting to the absolute top, you refer to the current Prime Minister, you're right, in Canberra, there's this feeling of astonishment as the Turnbull government just goes round and round the same roundabout on tax policy just to take one issue. Um, everyone, no one can believe that someone like us, someone who's educated, uh, you know, wears a nice suit, likes good art, seems like a smart bloke, he's been in six months, it's quite obvious he has no agenda. Which, what are we going to put him in? Is he needy, greedy or deedy? <laughs> Well, I think he's done greedy in his past career. I think it's clearly a needy case. We needed him to be deedy, and we're all very disappointed. But five prime ministers in five years, it's, it's a, lot of a, a lot of disappointment. We've got to get over the idea it's a them problem. Mm. It's an us problem. And, uh, you know, part, part of it is what Tams is talking about. Every time I drive past the eight-hour day memorial in Melbourne, I kind of go, that's the next fight we have to have. You know, if we could actually have eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours of play again, then we could build a bit of politics into our daily lives the way we clean our teeth twice a day. Uh, you know, that's how many of the great things in the 20th century happened. People had balanced lives that allowed room for self, family, community, society. And that has been tragically lost in this grotesque marketisation of everything. It's interesting. I mean, one of the Claire Wright, the historian from La Trobe, has written a, a terrific piece in this collection as well about Vita Goldstein and and that that early activism, which you know was in, in incredibly informative in, in terms of shaping Australian political life and the and the capacity of women to be active participants, um, which is a story. I think. I mean, I've had so many people say to me, "I didn't know about her. I didn't know that." You know, it's so the system as we have it is somehow just a given, not something which has been won through struggle and fight and argument and argument back and forth. I guess, Anne, what I was interested in, um, in just following from what Tamsin and Chris were saying, I mean, you've been doing a fair bit of reporting of late about the asylum seeker issues. And it's, you know, it's clear to see from the response, for instance, in Brisbane over the last week with the, the, the you know, the holding back of the baby who was to be um, threat, under threat of being sent back to Nauru, that this is an issue which is galvanising public engagement. Um, but the response is 
I mean, it, it's there, but it's cynical, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, 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 the minister will come out and say, yes, I'll let the baby go and do a very compassionate press conference, and then within 24 hours is saying, oh, well, you know, allowing hints to be placed that the child was deliberately burnt and therefore they'll be, she'll, be, she'll be sent back. So it's, it's interesting the tension between the cynicism and the, and the desire for activism. Yeah. Uh, yes, but... Coming from different parties, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I'm watching with interest. It feels to me like there's a bit of a turning tide in the population. You know, more voices coming out. It's becoming more mainstream, I think. I don't know if people agree um, in support and concern for asylum seekers and the way we've been doing this so far. Um, the program that Julianne's referring to was. Um, we basically followed the life and death of, um, of Fazal Chigeni Najad, who was an Iranian man who came, was found to be a refugee, spent four whole years in our detention system in Australia, went round every place, every centre that we've got. He did a detention tour of Australia um, until he died on Christmas Island at the end of last year, and then that sparked those riots. And it was, there was an incredible amount of cruelty in the way that he was dealt and not dealt with, just kept waiting. Um, I mean, there were all sorts of things that happened along the way that, that explain why this happened, but there was still, the processes were very slow. He was just a number, you know, and at one stage he was one of a number of ten whose names were put forward to uh, then Immigration Minister Scott Morrison to... Um, sign off for them to be released. They were the department put to him. Look, these are people who have been found to be refugees. They have committed offences while in detention, but we don't think that they'll be a major threat to the community. Would you consider? He has to sign off. He says he's only he's got the ultimate power to do this. The, the whoever the immigration minister is. Um, would you consider releasing them into community detention because their mental health is suffering, every one of them. They were in a pretty bad way. Um, and he just ticked no. And I think, you know, like watching the, the response outside the hospital in Brisbane, I was talking to an immigration lawyer about that recently who does a lot of advocacy work, and um, he said it's once people meet people, once... once the rest of us meet the people, the asylum seekers, and so the doctors and nurses who, and he, well, he didn't even say meet, he said get to know. When you get to know individuals, then suddenly you get it and you're affected. And I, I don't know, I guess we need a big meet and greet between the politicians and all those people in detention or something. I wonder whether part of what it is is that we've lost the capacity to have a language around moral questions. I mean, in terms of, I wonder whether this goes to some of what you're writing about in institutions. I mean, as we've become a more secular society, that there's not a space for moral questions to be teased out with the seriousness of the mechanical and bureaucratic questions. I mean, you know, the papers are full every day of, you know, who's doing this deal on what and what the percentage is on this trade, on this particular policy or whatever. But the sort of underlying moral questions, I, I think there's not a place for those conversations, really. Um, yeah, I think... Um well, I think two things. I think that on the surface is, is true, and one of the things that the language of numbers does is it appears to be a neutral language. Mm. And so we can all sort of feel okay about that because um, there's a discussion going, taking place, which is, which is <laughs> devoid of the political 
that makes things uncomfortable sometimes. But I think we all live, and one of the things that made me cry about those business, actually I was driving in the car listening to the radio, Radio National Morning, and the, Brisbane, uh, the, the Bishop of Brisbane came out and was interviewed on the radio, one of the most moving uh, interviews I've ever heard. And he said, uh, the, the interviewer asked, well, aren't you scared that you'll be making religion political? And he said, but religion is political. Mm. And I think we have, not all of us are religious in the ways we used to be, but I think we live in ways that are still infused with forms of morality and ethics. And it doesn't take much to scratch that and to find that we care about what world we want our children to live in. We care about the environment. We care about our neighbours. Um, we have, you know, we, we want our children to learn languages and take music lessons, you know, we want them to do well. Um, we care about our old people. And it's taking that individual and daily experience um, of how we make meaning and so putting it into a language of, of public discourse that I think is what we need at the moment and then some of those things and, and that includes talking about how numbers are highly ideological and, and mm -hmm. political um, and I just want to capture your time for one more minute because um, in this in the debate about Nauru um, what we sometimes forget is the history of Nauru. Uh, Nauru is not only 10% inhabitable because the centre of the island has been entirely hollowed out by largely Australian-sponsored phosphate mining across the course of the 20th century. And Australia paid huge reparations for this. And then left with nowhere to live, Nauru, the Nauruvians? Nauruans are living on the outer circumference of their island. And in the 90s, without any natural resources left, they turned the place into a tax haven which ended disastrously. And so this is one of the few economies that the country had. I mean, they have no choice, really. And Naomi Klein has a wonderful... So I'm trying to connect here the situation we're facing with refugees to the environment. Because these two are linked. And she has a, Naomi Klein has a brilliant line where she says, the climate refugees of tomorrow are playing prison guards to the political and economic refugees of today. Um, so that was, a, that was a rant. But my point is that we, we do not talk about... The thing about the market is it operates in invisible ways and it's very hard to hold it accountable, but it is highly political and I'd love, I'd love us to talk in moral ways about the economy. Mm. Gabby, did you want, you want to... I just thought it was um, interesting thinking about the, this idea of morals and ethics because I knew when... Um, I knew I was getting close to burnout because I was staying awake at night worrying about other people's children and um, I sort of started saying to my closest friends and family, I don't think I can do teaching anymore... I was teaching kindergarten and when they asked me why, I said because I'm so morally and ethically conflicted and they were sort of like, seriously? <laughs> but it comes down to that, you know, I was being asked to, um, you know, put children through tasks that I knew that they wouldn't succeed at and it just so totally goes against the grain of what I know to be true 
as a teacher. And, and I think that's interesting, that idea of um, that language around those moral questions. I think that um, policymakers find it hard to to talk about those sorts of things because, as Tamsin was saying, you know, facts and figures are quite um, comforting in their own way and kind of a universal language that we can compare data and graphs and things like that and we don't have to think about, um, you know, the child that came to school without, you know, the sandwich in their lunchbox and couldn't concentrate all day. It's interesting because, you know, we've had in this country over many years now a recurrent narrative or sort of drumbeat, it's probably not more drumbeat than a narrative, about um, the way institutions behave to do bad stuff to people. And I mean, the example now is the, the, the inquiry into sexual abuse against children, institutional sexual abuse against children. Um, but there have been others, you know, we've, uh, over, over the last, last few decades. So it's as though that conversation and that reporting and that exposure happens in one space and something else is happening at the same time. And there's not a, I mean, I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who at the time you were listening to the, the hideous reports from that Royal Commission. And then the next item would be a story about sexual abuse of, of, of asylum seekers or refugees. And it was as though the bits didn't join up. And I just wonder what it is, where the failure is that, that, that those bits don't join up. I mean, Chris, that's your I, I think listening to this conversation, what I'm going to do afterwards is go away and look up Hannah Arendt on bureaucracy because she was the one who really mm. revealed the, that distancing process, the comfort in the numbers, in the, I'm just doing my job, it's just the system, okay, this lot of numbers is moving from here to here to here to here, the comfort of the bureaucratic cover. It seems to be a, a bit of a thread, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's creeping. It's that boiling frog thing, isn't it, you know? Mm. We're, we're being in so many ways by, by it. And yeah. by the people who are running the various bureaucratic elements of the apparatus in so many areas. And uh, my God, we're all really feeling the consequences now. Mm. Um, look, I'd really like to draw you in because um, I'm sure that you've all got really interesting um, things to add into this conversation. Um, so Meredith's got microphones, so if anyone wants to um, join the conversation, please just raise your hand and she will give you the, the microphone. Um, there's one over here, and then down the front. Julie, you said that we've become more of a secular uh, society today, but I think I uh, tend to differ a bit. Mm. Uh, the reason being is that even though most of us no longer go to church, more and more of us are sending our children to uh, schools of religion, uh, faith-based schools. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering as to why that's uh, happening. And I'm sure there are people here who'd probably send their kids to uh, faith-based schools or perhaps have even uh, left a, uh, a religious uh, mm -hmm. school. And just one other thing for Anne. That's for you. Uh, just in regard to uh, uh, children in, uh, sorry, not children, but uh, Aboriginals in Northern Territory where the police there apparently have the authority to arrest someone but without charging them on the basis of doing something as minor as possibly swearing. Mm. But they don't even have to have done that. If they have an intention to do that, I don't know how a policeman is supposed to know whether someone's going to swear so they can actually take them in and lock them up without uh, recording a conviction. And yet we've done nothing about it. There's no outrage. I don't hear anyone 
calling that uh, this is wrong. Mm. It's, it, I think it's a bit like, you know, Northern Territory is so far away from, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of advocates, I suppose. But there's people up there, paperless arrests, it's called, isn't it? And there is also a background briefing program, not by me, but by Wendy Carlisle on that. So you might be interested to have a listen. But, yeah, amazing. Just people in the park drinking in a public place and swearing, etc. Take them away, lock them up for a while, let them out later. And um, no need to even leave a paper trail. Tamsin, what about the faith-based schooling, the rise of that? Um, well, not faith-based, but school, yeah, private schooling that have a religious component. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, how long do you have? Um, I, I think there's a, a couple of factors going on. Um, uh, we must not lose sight of the funding program that John Howard brought in that channeled huge amounts of public funding to private schools. But aside from the, that structural uh, foundation, um, I think there's lots of peop- reasons people are religious or, go, you know, or were religious. Some of them had to do with belief and doctrine, and others, at perhaps at the same time, perhaps not, were to do with the social function that churches used to fill in society. Um, and some of them are very, those social functions are very attractive. They're about instilling values, they're about communities. Um, friendship networks and you know in rural communities where I come from they were about helping someone to, you know come and bring the harvest in the place you met your girlfriend but uh, faith-based schools offer I think so that's one thing I think that people find attractive about them they, they give a sense of moral um, foundation in a world that seems to be otherwise without them but I think also they're a product of a marketized Economy where everyone's worried about their children not getting ahead. And uh, private schools purport to offer their students facilities, individualised attention that parents fear that their children won't have access to in the state system. And I don't know how much of that is real and how much of that is, is um, not real. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be great to have a conversation about that, I think. Uh, just last, I think about 10 days ago, on the front page of the London Times was an extraordinary story which should give us all hope in this respect. The story was how changes in British education policy over a sustained period had begun to create the reversal of the flow from students from government schools to private schools. And in fact, there was now a net flow, net increase of proportion of the students moving to the government-funded system because the education was now perceived as high quality and effective and away from the private schools. And in fact, they were predicting quite a shake-out in the private school sector as marginal operators went under. I'm thinking, wow, you know, an example of policy improving and people responding in an unexpected direction. We, we tend to think all of these things are just, you know, the trajectory can only ever be one way, but you can do something about it and it can have an impact. Mm. And um, the other, the, the um, light-hearted ex- parallel would be the net migration to New Zealand rather than to Australia from New Zealand. <laughs> um, Gabby, did you want to respond to that in relation to the education issues? Or? I did, and I've forgotten what I was going to say, so I got swept up with what you two were saying. <laughs> okay, there was a person down the... Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's following on from your previous statement, uh, is there anyone in Australia that is actually doing it right? And 
if so, why isn't that program migrating further into the, into the system? And if not in Australia, then as you come in internationally. I think one of the things we're bad at as a polity is recognising when someone does something well and saying, that was good, let's have more of that. Um, I'll give you an example, Wayne Swan. Now, Wayne might not be the most charismatic politician, television is not his friend, but internationally he's recognised as the outstanding finance minister of the GFC period, has been much gonged, he was teaching recently at Princeton, he's, he's considered a really effective and you know, historically significant treasurer. When does anyone ever give him, give him any credit in Australia? I mean, we've, we've got to get a lot better at sussing out the dodgy brothers the narcissists, the, the needy and the greedy, and actually identifying and paying respect to people who actually do a good job. So I just offer that general response, but very important question. And Anne, I mean, it's come through in your, in your piece as well. I mean, that we're very good at doing trials. You know, we do lots of trials in all sorts of different areas. And then just at the point that the trial, you know, either delivers a, a good result or, or it's, you know, is, is on that trajectory, that stops and another trial starts. So we're not good at necessarily at, at translating those, um, those learnings into a, into a really applied fashion, which I think is a great loss because there's a lot of innovation, the new word, that we lose in that process. Um, now, there's a person with a mic and then there's a man in the second to the front row who's keen to talk. Hi. Um, my trade is a provocateur, so the first one I'm going to ask is why isn't your hashtag unfixing the system? Because really, we need to unfix the system from the control it's got over our lives. And um, the provocation I ask is, does money still matter most? Or are our attention values, energy and time, change maker currencies? And I'm a bit surprised why there isn't more attention given to the fact that many, many people are unfixing their thoughts from the system and they're being very active mm -hmm. in a very moral and ethical way and challenging the preeminence of money as mattering most and the discourse and actions are changing. So I'm actually quite optimistic because I think basically the institutions have had their best by date and we're in a transformation period of creating the new ones. Um, but we have the future past because they'll keep on being there. And, and when we keep on referencing as the things to concentrate on fixing, um, it's like giving Pavlova to a diabetic. Um, you know, I, I think there are many more exciting things to engage us to be optimistic about with the challenges, whether they be prison, um, education or health. I, oh, sorry. Go on, no, go on. Oh, I'd just love to know what it is that you're optimistic about. What are some examples? Um, the fact that... Well, I'm a, I'm a New Zealander who's living here, so given it all just raised enough money to buy a piece of land to give back to the people of New Zealand, yes. um, Tim Minchin and thousands of Australians raised money to send survivors off to Rome. So it doesn't matter that the institutions fail. People just go, we're getting organised. There's transition towns around Anthropocene-induced climate change, there's alternative education, there's tactical urbanism. I mean, you know, I could give you a long list, I won't bore people, um, and it's fragmented, but let's face it, to get the eight-hour day, to get d votes for women, I mean, that took a hell of a long time. So I think the fact that 
it's not rendered visible in traditional media doesn't mean there's not a lot going on. So operating outside the system effectively. Well, they've created their own system. So we go, the system. Mm. I mean, that immediately privileges yeah. it in discourse. It's just one system that's on its way out. Now, what you need to do is you need to take one of the cards that has got the Griffiths Review discount subscription offer because my next edition, which has just gone to the printers, is called Imagining the Future, and it's uh, <laughs> very much dealing with many of the issues that you've raised. <laughs> next... next. <laughs> oh, we couldn't imagine the, f imagine the future until we'd fixed the system. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, first, uh, a response to Chris. Uh, I'm not going to go into politics. I'm old enough to know better than to pick a fight with 250 psychopaths in a confined space. <laughs> it's, just not the, it's just not something for me. But I've noticed a, uh, that there are many common threads in the conversation that we've had. One of them clearly that comes through is economics. Tamsin called it marketization and called it cost-benefit analysis. There's an even deeper underlying common problem, I think, which I'd like to invite the panel to explore. One of the reasons why we have a problem with cost-benefit analysis is that in our present society, those who bear the cost are not those who get the benefit. Now, the way to resolve that is for somehow the population at large, the society that we are, to get, a, get our heads around thinking about the fact that we really are all in this together. And I think that's what we've lost. We had that much more when I came to Australia as a boat person myself back in the 1950s. Uh, yes, I'm old. Um, and, and somehow or other, Australians were Australians then and there was this sense of cohesion, a sense of we're building a nation here. I don't get that sense today. And that, to me, I think, lies at the heart of the problem. If we thought we were all in this together, then the person who bore the cost wouldn't mind because sooner or later the one who got the benefit would provide something that would go around the loop. I don't think we have that confidence anymore. Mm -hmm. Can I get some feedback from the panel? Yeah, yeah I, I, I thank you very much for that question um, or comment. Um, uh, you should read a book by Zoe Williams called In It Together, or Get It Together. It's an excellent book. Um, I think there's a common thread between, well, there's, I wanted to respond to the, the question immediately before yours, but you brought up um, the, the issue of inequality. And I think the problem with crowdsourcing funding is, which is great, you know, yay for the beach in New Zealand, and, and yay for Tim Mitchin, and yay for everything else. but what happens to us when we're weak or sick or we're a little bit mad or we've committed a crime which may not actually be a crime because we said something in a public park in the Northern Territory? You know, we are not em empowered in those moments because we don't have the money to mobilise or, or the time to mobilise. Um, and so I think we do need to think about a society in which at some times we are all those people and we will all be those people at some times over the course of our lives. And our public institutions were designed in order to catch us so that we could stack it, mm -hmm. yeah? And the great thing about the public health system, and this is why there is such a campaign around it in Britain at the moment, is that everybody's born into it. You're loved, you know, and you're held and you're offered care before you can even speak, before you're cognizant. And that's a wonderful metaphor because, you know, we'll probably die in that way too. Uh, and over the course of our lives, we won't always be strong. 
So I would really love us to, to think about society in the way that you're talking, but also think about how systems, we can design systems, and I think it is systems, because it's not ad hoc forms of funding. And one thing that institutions do is they take resources from the past and they bequeath them to us in the present, uh, and it, they ask us to look after them for the future. So we're thinking about equality not just across horizontally, but also vertically through time. And again, the environment is a big part of that. I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think divisiveness as, a, as the number one daily force in our life has become so overwhelming, you know, the big brotherisation of, of life, in effect. Um, and it... It, you're right, it didn't used to be to this extreme in Australian society. I, I remember I've got a, a Chinese-Australian mate who said the first time she experienced racism in Australia was in that early, you know, mid-90s period when Pauline Hanson was running around, John Howard started dog whistling. She, she was, you know, 40 by that stage. Life had been great, but suddenly everything began to turn. And whole swathes of policy, immigration policy, for decades was a bipartisan, very quiet, nicely run policy that worked well pretty much for everyone, for economic immigrants, for refugees. Politicians didn't try to exploit it. Uh, I think part of getting more normal people, more DD people back into the system, whether it's informally operating outside the system or actually in the mainstream institutions, you know, that, that ought to be one of the priorities. How do we kind of detoxify uh, debates in so many areas and stop this constant, you know, clashing, conflict, fights, punishing competition that just takes away that sense of common purpose that, that does build good societies? Could I just address what you were saying too, that I like that comment of those who bear the cost and not the ones who gain the benefit? And it made me think about my, I think it was my second year of teaching and I taught a young man in um, year six in Eden and it's, um, it's a pretty low socioeconomic uh, demographic there and, and, and there's pockets of great wealth as well. But this, this young man came from a, you know, a single, well, yeah, sometimes single parent family and he was in and out of... Um, battered women's refuges and I saw him, I watched him one day eat, a kid dropped a biscuit and walked on it and went, oh, kept walking and, and this little fellow picked it up and, and ate it, you know, was so hungry. And I worked with that kid, you know, like I just took as much time as I could with him and he was learning to play the guitar and I said, that sounds like a good idea and we'd bring our guitars in, have a little play at lunch and, you know, just... It just kept in touch with him, just looked after him as best as I could in my role as a teacher. Um, he went on and, um, you know, we kept in touch and he went on to do graphic design at Uni of Melbourne. He went over and worked in the mines in Western Australia. Now he has a graphic design business, a beautiful wife. You know, he, you know I, I can see there how my contribution to his life made a difference. More recently though, when I think about a little young man that was in my kindergarten class not that long ago, almost the exact same set of circumstances, the work that I would like to put into that child 
I'm too constrained to do. I can't do it with the workload that I'm mandated to do. So it does. It comes back to that, that business of, you know, there's going to be a cost, there's going to be effort and work put in, but the little man who I want to, to get that uh, benefit, he's not going to. So, yeah, that really uh, strikes a chord with me, I think. You know, and that's in the space of 15 years that I've seen that change occur. Hmm. Uh, can I just add to, to that as well? I mean, I think that one of the... I think that you're right. I mean, that, there's, that that notion of what the idea of Australia is is something that's very much up for grabs. And uh, Well, I don't think it's up for grabs. I think that we've forgotten to keep talking about it. And I think that in a society like this that you have to keep talking about it because it's not fixed um, and it's subject to such change with movements of people and economy and, and everything else. And I think that the failure to have that conversation in a sustained and ongoing way actually weakens us all. Um, and so I think, you know, you talk about the sort of period of your arriving and then those discussions that, that obviously have occurred. Um, that I think that the reluctance to engage in that sort of big thing of what the idea of Australia is, 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 a, part of the, is a part of the problem. Sorry, there's a question. Uh, just two quick questions back here. Uh, first, on the discussion of prisons and the like, one thing, and I'm going to be uh, simplifying the usual course of argument, but often what you see in that sort of discussion is uh, a real turning towards strong, hard law and order policy stances and, like, if we can crack down on crime and be tough and all the rest of it, that's um, seen as a political winner. One question I have is, is there a way to actually discuss that in a constructive fashion and add a bit more nuance to the debate for the fact that just really hardline policies and chucking people into prison isn't necessarily always going to be the best solution, and <laughs> to say the least. And secondly, on the idea of our politicians, and it's been sort of a running joke here today, and one I confess I find a bit depressing to see that and you see it in broader society, politicians are seen as the pond scum of our country, to put it bluntly. And one question I have is, how do we see them differently? Is it something where at the selection phase uh, we want to see the people that are driven by a real need to improve society? How can we start to get some of those people into public office more often? Thank you. I think there are a huge number of politicians who are really well motivated and doing a very good job that we just don't know about or recognise because they're not the ones that grab the media's attention. Um, and that, that's what I'm really arguing for, for more of us, for more people to get in and reinforce them because we've got to have the political smarts as well. Um, I think the... You probably have a few prison-related things you want to say. Sure. But I just want to join up something you said to something you were on about, and that is this linking of costs, ben costs and benefits. So, so, you know, your argument that the people who pay the cost don't see themselves getting the benefits. I think this is, this is actually an advocacy problem. You know, take your average eastern suburbs burglar. Uh, now, if we could incarcerate that person, teach them to speak English, give them a trade school, help them get a job, you know, there is additional public spending in doing that. But you in your Point Piper mansion are going to get a benefit because there's going to be one less 
you know, burglar knocking off your jewels at night. It's just we, we don't have the advocacy that, that joins up the spending and the benefits in a community kind of way because everyone's busy milking the conflict thing. Um, in relation to the, that cheap, awful law and order debate that always gets rolled out, you know, it, it's almost impossible to do in a public forum now, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to say the words Tony Blair uh, had the great line when he was running for Prime Minister, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And I actually don't think I've ever heard it encapsulated better. It's just that no one ever actually does anything much about the tough on the causes of crime. And if we did, things would change. Well, and on that law and order, the politics of it don't always fall the way you might expect. And um, for this piece, I talked to Greg Smith, who was the Attorney General in the O'Farrell government, and he was the one more than anyone in recent history, in New South Wales at least, and possibly nationally, really drove um, an agenda of trying to reduce prison numbers and invest in, you know, alternatives. And from a purely... People have often speculated about that it was a... You know, he's a man of the hard right and a, and a very um, uh, devout Catholic, and so people have speculated that it was a religious uh, motivation for him. And he said to me, no, actually, it, it wasn't. It was just common sense... And internationally, the UK and, and the US, conservative governments were realising how expensive prisons were. And so he sort of brought this idea. And he says he got most of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, at least, agreeing with him. And he thought that New South Wales was going to lead the way on this and that the other states would fall into line. But it didn't work out that way. It just, you know, he got attacked for being soft by Ray Hadley on Tui and others. And... It all fell over. Yeah. When are we, we going to get a Rachel Maddow to balance out Ray Hadley? Why don't we have one? One? A Rachel Maddow, you know, yeah. a, a, a progressive person with as much media influence as right wing shock jocks. Hey, looks Tamsin, very much like Tamsin. Actually, I was in Washington, D.C. last year. This is totally not related. And um, a guy came up to me and asked for my photograph on a Washington bus. He thought I was Rachel Maddow. Yeah, well, that's your homework <laughs> to become Australia's <laughs> Rachel Maddow. She began on community radio. There you go. There's a question there. Yes, they've got a couple of audition questions. Hi, um, a little bit of a change of tack, but I'd just like um, to have some of your opinions on what you think the impact of technology might be to changing the system, um, changing the way we do education, um, as you say, changing from, since we still do it the way we did it in the Industrial Revolution, um, changing the way we engage with government. Um, everyone, most of the audience probably got their smartphones out and, and engage in some way in that respects. Um, just kind of wanting your opinions on what impact that could play um, going into the future. Great question. Um, I'm sorry, I'll... No, no, I've been talking that one's not for me. No, I'll, seriously. No, you haven't, Rachel. <laughs> I think technology is the question in some ways, and it's fundamentally changing the nature of work. Um, it's going... It will do away with some jobs, and it will... And some jobs will be persistent. So, you know, something like a university is incredibly challenged by the digital revolution. Uh, this place has had a monopolisation on, or a monopoly on credentialisation for all of the 20th century. And it cannot maintain that monopoly anymore when there's 
other forms of access to information, and there's other ways of credentializing yourself through the internet. And some of that comes by accessing information, but some of it also comes by the forms of social networking that, um, that we're seeing. So now we trust what our friends say rather than the person that has the degree. Um, I think, <laughs> I know nothing about this except my opinions, but I think that you know, if I asked all of the people on this panel why they liked their job, I should do that in a minute, I think many of them will say because I get to work with these people, I meet so many amazing people, um, I see people grow and develop, uh, and it's that relational character of our work that um, I think we will miss in the digital economy, and I want us to think really hard about forms of time, forms of work, and what digitisation does to that. Oh, I want to jump in on that. <laughs> uh, I think that's interesting too in terms of, and something I um, finished with in, in the piece that I wrote for the Griffith Review was about, uh, I think in education we need to really consider carefully how we're teaching our young people to engage uh, in this digital world that they exist in. Um, like the emotional and social intelligences required to engage in that environment. And the trouble in education is it just kind of came upon us, you know, it was suddenly like, oh, here's a computer and now smart boards. And I, I know for myself as a, as a teacher, it was just very much learning on the job. And so you find yourself in a position now where, you know, the kids come in at age seven or eight and they've got their YouTube channel that they, you know, run at home and put you know, put clips up on and, and things like that and you're there sort of showing them how to open a Word document, you know, so there's been like this kind of time lag thing that's that's happened. The other thing I think about is um, that for me is part of the paradigm shift that needs to happen out of this industrial model because we don't live in that anymore. We, you know, we're living in, in a digital age now, so, you know, what what are our needs for that? And the, the, the final thing I'd like to say on that is that uh, for young people, so much of the research still isn't in, in terms of how, you know, what's a good safe use of digital technology and screen time and things like that. That's still quite uh, highly contested. And yeah, so we're sort of in a fluid stage there of what, you know, what's going to be the best, the best thing. So that's, that's my take on that one. Uh, technology, okay, let's start with the internet. Cats, education, porn. Cats, great, education, great. Porn, deep worry. I think looking around this room, there's probably no one under 25. Uh, I don't think our generations understand how internet porn is transforming the world adversely for young women, going, becoming sexually active, uh, coming into contact with boys who have learned sex from watching endless hours of internet porn in which violence against women is completely routinized and normal. And um, stay tuned for some interesting emerging socioeconomic stats on that. It's horrible. Uh, but the other thing is robotization. And no one's much talking about robotization at the moment, but this is the coming wave. It's going to hit us like a massive truck. Um, when I was preparing to graduate, with my PhD at the end of last year, Brian Schmidt, Nobel laureate, and, and now the ANU's Vice-Chancellor, kicked off his little brief talk to a group of us saying, congratulations, there's a lot of work going on at our university speeding robotization across the economy. You with your PhDs will be amongst the last to be, to be displaced by robots. 
but it's coming for, they're coming for everyone else. So I think this is the emerging issue and how we deal with a society where, you know, you know what it's like now, it's hard enough to find jobs for people who aren't, you know, good at word stuff. Uh, it's going to be 10 times harder in 10, 15, 20 years. And I think as a society, that's one of the conversations we start needing to have now in advance of really serious unemployment problems. And did you want to say anything as your final word? Not on that one, no. no. <laughs> can, can I just do a little plug, which is not about Griffith's Review, unusually. Usually I can only plug Griffith's Review, but uh, I will step away from that for a moment. There is a fact, there was terrific research that was done at Oxford a couple of years ago about the level of automation of jobs that, that was going to, you know, predicted to happen across all the different, every imaginable employment sector. It was picked up and um, actually developed for an Australian audience by uh, academics here at the University of Sydney and included in the, uh, the CEDA report on the future of work that was published this time last year. Coincidentally, the, um, the web design, you know, the, the games design people at PBS in the United States developed a little animation which um, shows what will happen to what jobs. And if you Google PBS Future of Work, you'll get this thing. Um, as predominantly parents um, and teachers, I would urge you to have a look at it because it's quite shocking. Um, and you will find, I'm quite good, being an editor is quite good, I think I've got about a 4.7% of being automated, so that's quite good, I'm, I'm alright, but there's lots of jobs that you wouldn't, you know, being a routine journalist, 60% chance of being automated. So it goes into the sort of level of detail in a way which is very entertaining, but also quite, quite terrifying. So that's going to be a really, really big issue in terms of the future of the system, and it may well transform it in a way that um, previous revolutions have transformed things. But that was beyond our brief tonight. Um, so I would like to ask you to thank our speakers um, and encourage you to pick up a copy of the book if you haven't read it already.